Almost Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host, and today on our show, we have a special treat for you because we are having one of our... Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with my friend, Dr. Carl Truman. Now, Carl has been in the news a lot lately because of his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But allow me to tell you a bit about who Carl is. He's a Christian theologian and church historian. He used to teach at Westminster Theological Seminary, and now he is at Grove City College in Western PA, where he serves as the full professor in their Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Among Truman's books, and he's got a lot, John Owen, Reformed Catholic, Renaissance Man, The Creedal Imperative, Fools Rush In Where Monkeys Fear to Tread, Taking Aim at Everyone, and Republicrat, Confessions of a Liberal Conservative. He contributes to the online periodical First Things and is an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And today we're going to talk about this book, and it's an awesome book. I am so grateful for the folks at Crossway for sending it over to me because it is a book that helps all Christians understand how we got to a place in our society where a man could say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, and somehow that makes sense into for our contemporary sensibilities. If we were to go back 20 years or 30 years, people would look at you like you are crazy, and yet that is where we are in our world today. And how are we as Christians to respond to that? How did we even get to where we're at? And that's what Carl Truman's book is about. And again, the title is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. This is just a bit about the book, and it's from the inside front cover. Modern culture is obsessed with identity. Since the landmark Oberfell v. Hodges Supreme Court case in 2015, sexual identity has dominated both public discourse and cultural trends. Yet no historical phenomenon is its own cause. From Augustine to Marx, various views and perspectives have contributed to the modern understanding of the self. In other words, how do we see ourselves? We have to go back historically in church history, as well as within sociology and psychology and philosophy, and see how all of these different figures and their beliefs, their writings, contributed to how we understand ourselves in the modern world. And in this timely book, as the front cover goes on to say, Carl Truman analyzes the development of the sexual revolution as a symptom rather than the cause of the human search for identity. Truman surveys the past, brings clarity to the present, and gives guidance for the future as Christians navigate the culture in humanity's ever-changing quest for identity. So I would encourage you to listen into this really fascinating conversation as we talk about sexual identity as well as some of the practical outcomes workings of that? Do we use gender neutral pronouns when someone is suffering from gender dysphoria? How do we respond to the Equality Act that is going to affect all people if it really does go into play? 
These are just some of the things that we talked about in our conversation, so I would encourage you to sit back, listen in to my fascinating discussion with Carl Truman. Happy listening. Carl, welcome to Apollos Watered. It's great to be on, Travis. Thanks for inviting me. So here we go. Our first, our first off, we have our Fast Five. Are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay, here we go. You are from the UK, so here's the first question. Coffee or tea? Tea. What kind of tea? Uh, probably PG Tips. Oh, that's a very that's a very UK tea. That Do you get that very much in the United States? Where do you find that at? We get it from Amazon. Evil Amazon provides us with PG Tips. <laughs> Evil Amazon. I love that. Yes. Okay. Here's the next one. Outside, I mean, you're an academic, but outside of academics, what's the one hobby that you have that people may not know about? I've started learning the bluegrass banjo, Scrug style. <laughs> really? I have, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. What made you pick up the banjo? I wanted to do something that didn't involve either exercise or reading, both of which I do anyway. So I decided to learn an instrument and I gave my wife a choice, bagpipes or banjo, and she selected the banjo. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Okay, uh, so you are from the UK. Now, what is the one food that you miss that is not here in the US? Ironically, it's curry. I miss curry, which is a big thing in the UK these days. Really? I mean, not that I'm surprised at that. I mean, there's such a, in, uh, of course, an uh, Indian ethnic heritage population that's there. So, but that's such become part of the British culture, which is phenomenal. Yeah. It's, it's not a, a good curry in the United States. We, we, we found curries occasionally in the United States, but they're everywhere in Britain. And I think it's the, certainly in Western Pennsylvania, it's, it's hard to find a good curry house. <laughs> so how long have you been in, this isn't one of the questions, but how long have you been in the US now? Nearly 20 years, came in 2001, August 2001. So, so when you first came here, I mean, I know you did schooling here, but what is the one expression that Americans say that confuses you or bothers you? Uh, pants. When Americans refer to pants, I default to thinking of underwear, which is quite embarrassing when women will say to me, as they have done in the past, tell your wife those pants I bought fit. Always makes me blush. Okay, well, speaking of your wife, what is one habit that your wife or kids say that you have? That's our fifth question. It's a weird habit you have. Oh, um... Uh, Laugh, being the only person who laughs at something. And I think they find that intensely annoying. You mean like in a show or movie or a joke or just all of Maybe the Maybe just a thought in my head, which is even more annoying. I'd be lying in bed at night and suddenly burst out laughing and it drives my wife absolutely crazy. Is it just that it occurs to you in your mind at that moment in time? Or what is yeah, that? something like that. It's, it's, I'll remember a funny incident or a funny line and I'll just burst out laughing and my wife hates it. Okay, well, let's, let's turn to more. I mean, those are funny things that tells us a bit about you. I mean, you've been married for how long? Uh, coming up 31 years. 31 years. And how many children? Two boys, grown-up boys, gainfully employed, paying tax. It's uh, my wife and I are free, free as birds now. <laughs> And now you're spending your time educating the future youth of the church at Grove City. I am and is, playing blue, playing bluegrass banjo in the evenings. So 
yep, those two things <laughs> occupy me. You can't make this stuff up. Um, <laughs> now, I, I want to talk to you about, I mean, we, you know, it's good to have some laughs, but there's a lot of serious things going on in our culture. And you've written about it. Matter of fact, you've written a lot, but your most recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Now, reading your book, it, it's a phenomenal book. It's a, it's a big book. And as we here at our ministry, we talk about watering your faith so you're watering so they can water their world. And I'm not going to lie, your book is deep. And it's a, this is so indicative of the conversation that we have, these deep conversations. And you cover a lot of ground and build a fascinating case at how we got where we are. And you even start off with the question, uh, as you were kind of a, speaking to your grandfather, if he were to ever hear the expression, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, he would laugh. But yet that's exactly where we're at today. What was then the, the, the impetus for you to write this book? I mean, what made you even think of that question? Is it just what you saw going on in the culture or is it something that you personally experienced? Well, it was really during the, I, I taught at seminary in Philadelphia for many years. And in the latter time, teaching at the seminary, I was also a part-time pastor of an Orthodox Presbyterian church just outside Philadelphia. And I think as a pastor, you become acutely aware of challenges that your congregants are facing, and you become more aware in some ways of the way the world out there is changing than perhaps otherwise. And I was struck at how confused, disturbed, disoriented certain members of my congregation were by the changes in the culture around us, particularly relating to sexual morality and sexual uh, habits and practices, uh, of which transgenderism was undoubtedly the most extreme and radical example and seemed to happen so quickly. No sooner was gay marriage being resolved by uh, the Supreme Court of the United States than Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner, was launched upon the world and, and, and trans went mainstream. So a, a lot of the impetus for the book on that front really came from wanting to write something that would help Christians, and not, not just Christians, but uh, interested other people, understand why the world looks the way it does now, why we're seeing the changes taking place. Uh, that we are witnessing at this point in time. So it was a sort of a pastoral concern and then also just an intellectual, uh, an, an issue of intellectual curiosity. I was interested in how is it that these sentences, you know, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, how is it that these sentences come to be plausible? It doesn't happen overnight. In order for society to generally accept the plausibility of those statements, a whole host of other things already have to be accepted by society, already have to be in place in order for them to make sense. So there was that intellectual curiosity dimension as well. So taking that, and, and it's amazing to me, is not just where we're at, but how quickly this has developed. And some try to root it in the 60s, but you actually go back much further than that. I mean, you you go back a few hundred years beginning with Jean-Jacques Rousseau and then move to the English Romantic poets like Wordsworth, Shelley, and Blake. And then you move into Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud, and Darwin, and, and in even some 20th century thinkers, with all of them together pointing in a direction that we've been become obsessed with the self and how you united the psychological man with sex and then specifically the perception of sexual freedom and then united with Marxism, creating this really wicked cocktail 
what I like to call a cultural carbon monoxide that slowly lulls people to sleep with the spirit of the age. I mean, why do you think that these things all come together so powerfully to create our modern Western view of the world? It's an interesting question. Of course, in, in some ways, uh, as long as my book is, it's the longest book I've ever written, it's, it's still only a partial answer to that question. There are a whole host of factors that come into play in shaping the world as we know it. Um, as, I, as I hinted a couple of times in the book itself, there's a, there's a technological dimension to this. None of this happens without the aid, assistance, help of technological developments. Uh, but what I, what I wanted to do was was make people realize that although, as you pointed out in your question, we can do a knee-jerk, let's blame the 60s for this. The 60s doesn't come out of nowhere. The 60s don't cause the 60s. Every historical action, every historical epoch has a background and a context. Part that, that means that it, to some extent, wherever one starts the story is going to be a little bit artificial. There's always going to be a backstory to the story you're telling. But it does mean that the further back you go, the larger, broader, deeper the context and perspective you can then get on the issue. So uh, when you take that sentence, I'm a, a man trapped in a woman's body or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, in order for that uh, sentence to make sense, one of, the, one of the fundamental aspects is we have to be living in a world where inner feelings, where psychological states have been granted huge authority, authority to the extent that they ace anything the body can do. hundred years ago, if you'd gone to your doctor and said, uh, doctor, I've got a problem, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, your doctor would respond, well, you have a problem with your mind. We, we need to sort your mind out and bring it into line with your body. Today, you go to a doctor, your doctor's going to say to you, you have a problem with your body. We need to bring your, we need to bring your body into line with your mind. How is it that we so authorized psychology? And, and that story is a long one. And so in the book, I, I go back to Rousseau, not because he's the first person who looks inward for truth and identity, but he's a particularly uh, influential example of that. Uh, and Rousseau's basic idea is that who you are is that cry of nature within you. Before society gets you and messes you up, there's a basic cry of nature that is who you really are inside. So we have with Rousseau the, the move towards making the, the self a psychological entity. In the 19th century, we have Marx, Darwin, Freud, and uh, uh, Marx, Darwin, and, and Nietzsche, and figures like that saying, you know, uh, thing about guys like Rousseau and the Romantics was they they were right in seeing inner feelings as being definitive of of who we are in many ways, but they were wrong in thinking of human nature as having a given moral structure. There is no moral structure to which we need to apply ourselves. Uh, to which we need to conform. We're, we're free on that level or should be free on that level. Then you have Freud coming in, beginning of the 20th century, and Freud saying, it, you know, Rousseau's correct. Marx, Nietzsche, Freud are basically correct in what they say. But that inner space, that inner space is deeply sexual. What you feel inside the most basic level are your sexual desires. And Freud's the key person in the narrative because when Freud does that, what, what, it, what, what he essentially says is this, sex is not an activity. It's actually the fundamental part of your identity. Sex ceases to be something that you do 
and become something that you are. And of course, once sex is that which you are, once sex is identity, then it inevitably becomes very public and political because laws, rules, conventions, customs that corral or shape uh, how we think about sex, shape what sexual behaviors are legitimate, what are illegitimate, they're also laws that are determining your identity, preventing you from being who you want to be. And that sets up the play for largely where we are today. When you think about the dominant issues in political culture today, what are they? Well, there's race on the one side and the sexual identity uh, on the other. And our sexual politics are really rooted in that narrative that goes from, from Rousseau to Freud and beyond. And you mentioned this, not just in the book, but I know you've written up for first things on some of those aspects between uh, really just identity politics. How do we as Christians try to navigate this minefield in which we find ourselves? Very, very hard. I think, first of all, it's it's useful to understand the nature of the minefield. A lot of Christians, certainly of my generation, I, I don't speak for the younger generation here, but a lot of Christians in my generation still tend to think of sex as primarily an activity. And so, you know, talking to a gay person, we might use the argument, we, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. That doesn't work when the person you're talking to so identifies themselves with their sin that they can't make that conceptual distinction. So I think it's helpful for the church to know about the nature of identity in, in the contemporary world. Secondly, I think it also... It means that the church has got to be very careful in in how she navigates these things internally. Uh, the last couple of weeks uh, in the Anglican Church in North America, the whole issue of uh, celibate gay Christians has exploded once again. And I, I think part of the problem with debates we're having at the moment about celibate, celibate gay Christians is we're conceding that gay is a legitimate identity label. And as soon as the church starts thinking of identity in terms of sexuality, gay, straight, or whatever, we're going to end up with terrible confusions about what is and is, what is and is not legitimate, et cetera, et cetera. So I think knowing this story and knowing the lay of the political land at the moment should hopefully chasten us in terms of how we think internally about these matters of morality. Which are obviously not easy to do, especially when the culture around us has changed so quickly. And as you mentioned, it's become such a key part to their identity. And, and, and it, then it, it goes to the other side where you bring in the Marxism aspect, where there's this victimhood mentality that has been cultivated, and it's become a way, uh, a part of the way of how we think. But the problem is, is that everybody becomes a victim, and then it just is left to the individual to determine, quote unquote, their truth which can't stand, can it? No. Uh, and in fact, I would say the problem's even more complicated than that, because once you allow that identity is psychologically constructed, uh, you're going to end up with a situation in society where you have identities that are actually mutually exclusive. Uh, and therefore, somebody's got to decide which identities are legitimate or which are illegitimate. Most extreme example that I often use in class with the students is you know, a serial killer. Uh, we don't accept the legitimacy of a serial killer as an identity. Uh, the government has laws in place to stop that identity manifesting itself or when it does manifest itself being severely punished. Well, the same thing now applies really when you think of you know, a conservative Christian. Conservative Christian does not believe 
that homosexuality is a legitimate uh, activity, nor is it a legitimate identity. Unfortunately, gay people do think that, and they're going to think that your views of gay of, uh, of the gay lifestyle of homosexuality are offensive and oppressive. Somebody's got to step in and and referee that competition, decide who wins, if you like. And so we have this rather odd situation emerging in, in Western society at the moment uh, in general, but I think particularly in, in the United States of America, where what we might call a radically libertarian view of human identity, where you can be anything you want, you can choose your identity, is, is, is fueling and fostering a rather authoritarian form of political governance, whereby the government is, is taking a, a more and more intrusive role into what were previously considered to be private domains, parental education of children, for example, free exercise of religious worship. These things are coming under huge pressure precisely because not all of these psychological identities can possibly live happily together in one society. Isn't that what we're seeing, though, within the LBGTQ plus community, where you actually refer to a bit to this, but you only allude to it, it's when you have the the transgender and the feminists are are starting there's starting to be a fracture between the two because you're seeing these women such as J.K. Rowling saying no they're not women. It, is that what we're going to see as a continual fragmentation as this can, as this goes on? Yeah, the LGBTQ movement is interesting because the T and the Q really stand in fundamental opposition to the L, the G and the B. Lesbians, gay men, bisexuals assume that uh, there is such a thing as male and female and it tracks onto physiological sex characteristics. It's biological. They don't allow for a distinction, a radical distinction between sex and gender. The T and the Q do. They don't see that uh, your biology has any definitive or final say in your gender. Uh, the, the LGBTQ movement really was forged on the principle of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And when all of these sexual minorities were essentially on the, on the receiving end of, of what they saw as the, the heterosexual patriarchal society, then they found common cause in opposing that. Uh, now that uh, they're moving into a culturally dominant position, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend is no longer a strong enough glue to hold them together. Just this morning, I was reading about the case of uh, a gay man, I think, in Michigan who runs uh, a camp exclusively for gay men. And he's now coming under heat as being transphobic because he won't allow biological women who identify in terms of gender as men to use his campsite. So we're beginning to see the, the fracturing, the fragmenting of the LGBTQ alliance. Now that, if you like, the, the big enemy, heterosexual normativity, is dead as far as they're concerned, we're beginning to see civil wars breaking out. And feminism, of course, is being torn apart by this. You have feminists such as Jermaine Greer and, and the late Adrienne Rich and J.K. Rowling, who you mentioned, essentially saying, no, uh, these men who identify as women, they're actually stealing. They're stealing our identity. They're stealing our history. They're stealing our history of suffering and oppression. They're doing, if you like, what men always do. And that's trying to to take this stuff for themselves, and they're opposing it. And it's it's fascinating to see 
traditional feminism and the more radical transgender feminism uh, uh, going at it in, in real warfare terms. There, are, there is nothing nastier you can find on the internet, and the bar for internet nastiness is set pretty high. There is nothing nastier than the comments being made by transgender activists about traditional feminists. You know, hearing all of this and seeing this in this, as you mentioned, a civil war within themselves, yet we we're on the outside because in many ways that's that's in some ways become the default position, at least from a political standpoint, where if you're not in line with that, then you are completely marginalized. But how do we then continue to testify to Christ and even build relationships where there can be dialogue when we disagree on the fundamental parts of identity? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think there's no single, you know, there's no there's no one silver bullet answer to that. I think a number of things apply. First of all, uh, I, I think as citizens of the earthly city, to use Augustine's kind of language, we still share a lot of common loves with other fellow citizens, uh, peace, social stability, these kind of things. We can stand shoulder to shoulder with our non-Christian neighbors on a whole host of things that bind us together in this in this earthly city. Secondly, I think among the, the ranks of, of those we would typically not have stood with, uh, we can find common cause on the grounds that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There have been uh, a few years ago at the Heritage Foundation of all places in Washington, uh, there was a, a dialogue, a panel of radical feminists and Christian conservatives agreed on that one thing, that trans ideology was a bad thing for women and a bad thing for society. So we see some of those things emerging. I think it's also important for Christians to remember that there's a distinction between what I would call ideology and activists and individuals. There's a big difference between those who are pushing LGBTQ ideology in a vigorous political way in order to transform society and the individual whose path you might cross for whom this is their issue or their struggle. We need to remember when we're engaging with LGBTQ people as individuals, they're human beings. They're made in the image of God and we should treat them with courtesy, love and concern. Uh, and I think that at times of polarization, we can forget that. We can tend to lose the human face of those that we think are, are the enemy. So I would say, you know, I, I would write very differently about LGBTQ ideology uh, to how I might speak to an individual LBGTQ person in my office who'd come to talk to me about their struggles or, or their issues. And then I think the church... On one level, the church needs to do what she's always done. She needs to preach the whole counsel of God. She needs to engage in faithful corporate worship week by week. And she needs to be a community. One of the characteristics of our present age is communities collapsing all around us, at least traditional communities are. And people are craving uh, to belong to something. Why is it that the number of kids suffering from gender dysphoria has, has shot up? It's a way to belong. It's the latest cool thing that allows kids to feel they belong to a group. Belonging is a powerful human desire and human motivation. And I think when the church takes its role as community seriously and shows that the church is something that, that allows you to belong in a powerful, deep and meaningful way, then that will have an impact on, on, on those around us. Do we cater to those who, and I love your distinction between ideology and individual, 
But for those individuals that are in the midst of the struggle, I mean, it, there there is a difference between those who recognize that they are are struggling with this and those who are refusing to see it as a struggle and embrace it as an identity. And how do we go about that conversation with them when there might even be a refusal, for example, of the proper pronouns to use? Because I know that's the question that, I, that I've had to deal with. Do I use those pronouns to refer to that person that they're asking me to? And am I, by doing so, am I catering to a delusion or do I insist on using the, the proper pronouns of the gender that they are biologically and yet then shut off communication by doing so? What, what do you recommend? That's a good question. And I think, I mean, you're a pastor, you, you know that the first thing I'm going to say in my response is that every pastoral situation has its own uniquenesses that mean that an awful lot of, an awful lot of wisdom is needed in engaging with people. And while my instincts are to say, no, don't use the requested pronouns. I could see a situation where it might be a short-term tactic slash strategy in order to build a friendship or a relationship, where I could see myself saying to somebody, look, you know where I stand on this issue. You know I don't agree with it. But because I want to continue the conversation, I'm willing to make this concession to you. Please don't read it as me affirming your identity. I'm doing it out of courtesy and respect to you as another human being in order to keep the conversation going. I could certainly see that as a, a legitimate approach. Whether it's appropriate in every case, whether it's appropriate in a majority of cases, I don't know. But I certainly could see that being adopted as a, as a strategy, uh, if that makes sense. No, totally does. And as we're, I know that our time is very limited today, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the Equality Act, because I know that you have written a bit about that for first things uh, before everything was signed and, and really brought out. But what, what are the things that many Christians need to know about and what do we need to do in response to it as this legislation is facing us right now? I think, well, first of all, I think read the act. I actually have a printed out copy staring at me in the face at the moment. I've read it a couple of times recently. You can find it online. So familiarize yourself with it. Uh, I think what the, the, the sort of the simple heart of the Equality Act is, it's essentially an expansion of the Civil Rights Act to include protections for uh, people who identify relative to sexual orientation and most significantly, gender. It's essentially... Uh, placing into general law the principle that uh, Justice Gorsuch outlined in his ruling last year in the case, in the Bostock case, which was about transgender workplace rights. The significance of the act, I think, will be profound. Churches, I think, will still enjoy some protections, at least for the time being. But the further out from being a church you are, the less protection you will enjoy. So if you are a Christian agency of some kind, an adoption agency or mission agency or something, and you're not directly denominational or ecclesiastical, you could well find yourself vulnerable relative to your hiring practices under the terms of the Equality Act. Uh, you know, on one level, the Equality Act is that the civil rights legislation is, you know, what it desires to achieve is, is a good thing. We, we don't want a world where people are just mistreated by other nasty people. But this act pushes the envelope so far that really we're, we're going to be in a very interesting situation where the balance of 
religious liberties over against employee rights. That's, it's going to be a very, very contested area. And I think it's going to be heavily tilted towards the employee by this act. Which is something I think is pretty sobering and to wake up many Christians. I mean, what do we need to do? I mean, yes, read the act, but what else can we do in, in order to be faithful to Christ in the midst of this? Are we to be writing to our senators? Are we to be, I mean, continuing prayer, obviously. But what are other things that we can be doing actively in the midst of our world to stand for Christ and stand for truth as we continually debate not just this, but other things that are to come that will inevitably be there? Yeah, well, first of all, as you say, prayer. I think prayer is absolutely essential at this point. Uh, I think we need to avail ourselves of the of our full range of of, of civil you know, rights, privileges, whatever you want to call them, that we have in the United States in terms of voting, speaking to senators, making our feelings heard. Always, I think, in a respectful manner. Um, I think that there's there's something to be to be said for engaging respectfully rather than disrespectfully in these situations be informed, consider supporting groups that are taking the, you know, taking on the fight where it can be done with some degree of, of, of power. You know, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Heritage Foundation, the Ethics and Public Policy Center in, in DC. These are all groups with, with a certain amount of, of purchase, a certain amount of access to influential individuals. Consider supporting them. Pray for them. Consider supporting them financially. Um, and the other thing, is, as we've said already, is, is the church needs to be a strong community because when pressure comes, if the church is not a strong community, then it will just fall apart at this point. Any concluding words that you have for uh, people that want to read your book or what they, can, what they need to know or perhaps other resources out there that they can take a hold of? Yeah, well, the good news on on the book for some people is I'm writing a shorter version that will be easier to read that should be out early in 2022. Um, one that we're designing for kind of pastors, youth leaders, that sort of that sort of get that get it into the hands of digestible form, into the hands of people with with direct access to lay people. Uh, I would I would say find out what good stuff there is online to read. Public discourse the daily news bulletin of the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton provides a daily essay on these kind of topics that will keep you up to date in what's going on uh, in the world around. Um, so I would say that's definitely something to look at. First things, the webpage I write for has a lot of material addressing these kind of social situations and trying to help religious people, conservative people, uh, think through the implications of what's going on. So, so be informed uh, and and get hold of of the great web resources. Uh, if you're interested in transgenderism, um, the work of Ryan Anderson. You can't get it on Amazon now. It's been banned from Amazon, but his book, uh, When Harry Became Sally, is one of the calmest and most thorough examinations of trans ideology and its implications available. You get it from the uh, uh, the publisher, whose name eludes me at this particular moment in time. But uh, that would definitely be a book to have, be, have on your bookshelves as well. Well, I want to thank you for your time. And my last question is, is when is your album going to be ready with you, with you playing bluegrass? 
Oh, I think around about 2036, I think I should be of uh, the requisite standard. (laughs) Well, I do want to thank you for uh, being our guest today on the show for our deep conversation. And we look forward to not only, I, I would recommend people to read the book. If it, it is, it is long, it's 400 pages long, but it's chock full of so much information for those that want to go deeper and really be able to tear these issues apart and understand the thought process. But if that's not for you, then there's another book to come. And I hope we can have you again on the show when that book comes out so we can dialogue further about it. Does that sound good? That sounds great. That was an amazing conversation. I wanted to thank Carl Truman for coming in to talk to us about his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And I also want to thank Crossway for providing the book for us. It's not an easy book. In fact, The first 150 pages were quite difficult because I didn't quite understand exactly where he was going. But then he really hit his stride and brought it out in ways that I was really blown away by. If you're not intimidated by a 400-page book, then by all means, pick it up. But if you are, then just wait. It won't be too long that there will be a smaller volume that's a bit more applicable that we can use in our everyday lives. But I do want to thank him for coming in. I did thoroughly enjoy the conversation. Today's show is brought to you by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then Kathy is the person that you want to call. She is an incredible real estate agent, and she has an incredible team around her. She comes with years of experience and cares for her clients. She sat down with us, learned what we were looking for, and then presented us with the best options that were right for us. And she can do the same for you. I would recommend giving her a call or text Today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. Well, this is another episode in the books. If this has helped you so that you can water your world, then would you do us a favor? First of all, hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review online, interact with us on any of our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. We would be honored if you did. Also, would you consider being a part of our Apollos Army? The Apollos Army are those who pray for us and partner with us financially in order for us to water the faith of people around the world so that they can water their worlds wherever they are. Go to apolloswater.org and click the Support Us button to find out more. And just to let you know, we are having our second Apollos Watered Weekend Men's Retreat. We will be meeting at Phantom Ranch Bible Camp in Muckwanago, Wisconsin, where we will open the Word of God and talk about how we might bloom in Babylon. Our world is fallen, and over the last few decades, we've seen a shift in how Christianity is being expressed in the world. How do we live in that? How do we follow Jesus where it seems that every turn... Wherever we go, we are receiving opposition. So join me on Friday, April 23rd, 2021 to Sunday, April 25th, 2021. Our theme is Blooming in Babylon. And pay attention to our show as we get ready for another Apollos Watered Weekend that is coming up with anyone who wants to come. Last of all, I could never do this by myself. I want to thank my ministry running mate in all of this, Kevin O'Brien, as well as our social media team, 
Eliana Fleming, Rebecca Bedal, and our audio engineer, Brian Dana. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>